Thank you for joining us for this podcast from College Church of the Nazarene, University Avenue. The following was recorded live on location in Bourbonnais, Illinois. So was the fruit the point? Was it all about the fruit? Is it all about the fruit? We read this morning a pretty scary parable, at least scary to the degree that we take it seriously. We read this morning a pretty convicting parable, at least convicting to the degree that we take it seriously. Told by Jesus, told by the Christ, told to God's chosen people about farmers who refused to turn over the fruit of their labor to the owner of the vineyard on whose land they were farming because they either didn't have any fruit to show for their labor or because they thought it was their fruit to keep. But then, who then not only refused to turn over the fruit, but who rejected the right of the landowner to even hold them accountable for whether or not they had any fruit at all, and who then not only rejected the landowner's authority, but who killed the servants of the landowner sent to collect the fruit, even going so far as to killing the son of the landowner. That's the story we read this morning. And after telling that story, that parable about farmers who did not recognize the authority of the landowner to ask for an accounting, Jesus asked the people who were chosen by God to be God's people and to whom this story was directed, Jesus asked them this question, therefore, what, when the owner of the vineyard comes back, what will he do to those servants, those tenants? And what the people people chosen by God said was that those farmers who were supposed to produce fruit for the owner but didn't and furthermore rejected the servants and even killed the son, what the chosen people said was was that those wretches should be brought to a wretched end. Jesus asked, what would the owner of the vineyard do to those farmers who didn't yield fruit and furthermore killed the son? The religious leader said in the New English translation, he will utterly destroy those evil men. Then he will lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his portion at the harvest. In the common English Bible, he will totally destroy those wicked farmers and rent the vineyard to other tenant farmers who will give him the fruit when it's ready. In the New Living Translation, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. In the Greek, literally, it is the evil ones will be evilly destroyed. Said the ones to whom the parable was directed when Jesus asked them what should happen to farmers who were entrusted to produce fruit for the landowner and who didn't and didn't even recognize the farmer's authority to collect the fruit. So now we know the story. And what they said back to Jesus was the right answer, as harsh as it was. Jesus agreed with their answer. But just in case they thought this was simply an academic exercise or a thought experiment... Jesus let them know, just in case they missed it, that this parable was about them, the ones who gave that answer. Jesus made it personal. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit, said Jesus. Yeah, that's the gospel reading for today. So was fruit the point? Was it all about the fruit? Is it all about the fruit? But before we answer the question, I need to give you a little more context. We need to know that Jesus told this parable the week of his crucifixion. It's Passion Week. Which means that 
At the beginning of the week on Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. 500 years before, Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, said Zechariah. So on Sunday, Jesus declared himself to be that longed-for king that Zechariah promised, which was a pretty bold thing to do. And then he immediately went into the temple for another prophetic revelation. And when he got at the temple, he violently disrupted the economy of the temple the week of Passover, when it would be most full. And in the process of overturning money tables and driving out animals sold for sacrifices with a whip, he made. Jesus said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. My house will be called a house of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making a den of robbers. But what we may not know is that Jesus, in that short declarative sentence, Jesus quoted two of Israel's prophets. Jesus quoted from Isaiah 56, in which Isaiah promised that the temple wasn't going to be restricted to Jews only, but was going to be a place of worship for all people. The passage from Isaiah, which contains the words, house of prayer, says this, Isaiah 56. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah. I will bring foreigners to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And in that short declarative sentence in which Jesus said, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers, he indicated that the temple use was wrong. They were not making it a place for all. And then he also quoted in that short declarative sentence from Jeremiah 7, in which Jeremiah named the sins of God's chosen people and who thought that God wouldn't notice their sins because they were still worshiping in that temple. The passage which contains the words den of robbers says this from Jeremiah 7. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I mean, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury and follow other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe? 
safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So when Jesus disrupted the temple operations the week of Passover, he was clear as to why he was doing it. And those folk there knew the Bible, knew their, knew their prophets. They wouldn't have missed that short declarative sentence and what Jesus was making reference to. It was because the children of Israel were exclusive and not welcoming foreigners to the temple. Because it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And because their worship had absolutely nothing to do with how they lived. In Jeremiah and Jesus' words, they were thieves for taking God's name but not taking his character. So the week in which Jesus told this parable about wicked farmers who refused to turn over the fruit of their labor to the owner and who even killed the owner's son, Jesus in no uncertain terms pronounced judgment on the way the Jews were doing temple. And this is just Sunday. So Jesus left Jerusalem for the night. But the next day on his way back into the city, Jesus cursed a fig tree for not producing fruit, immediately withering it, killing it. He went to get some figs off the tree. And when he, saw he, when, he, when he saw that it had none, Jesus said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered to the astonishment and consternation of those disciples. So there is that. And once back in the city, Jesus told the parable we read last week about the two sons, about the one who said no to his father's command and then went and did it. About the other who said yes to his father's command but didn't actually obey. And the parable was told to the religious leaders whom Jesus likened to the second son who gave lip service to the father but never really did actually did what he was asking. Sure, sure, sure. And then it was done. Jesus in that parable went so far to say, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are in the kingdom of God ahead of you. Because they were the ones repenting. So then we get to this parable of the tenants of the vineyard, which Jesus concluded by saying, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So in light of the additional context, let me ask again what I asked at the beginning of this message. Was the fruit the point of the parable Jesus told? Was it all about the fruit? Is it about fruit? Now before we answer that, before we answer the question, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves, I have to give you a little more context. And this context has to do with the parable itself. So Jesus chose as a setting for this parable a vineyard. I mean, this is a story Jesus made up to make a point. He's telling a story that he, that he wrote, that he said, right? And Jesus chose a vineyard as the setting of the story. And I have to say, on purpose. I mean, everything that happened the week of Jesus... Crucifixion was done intentionally. So Jesus chose as the context for this parable a vineyard for this reason. Israel understood itself as God's vineyard. 
So we read this morning in the responsive reading. This is what we read. This is what I read. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its roots as far as the river. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted. So to fully understand this parable and the impact on on those Jesus told it to, we have to know that they understood that Israel was the vineyard. But we should know, not only here in Psalm 80, also in Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about Israel as God's vineyard. And you wouldn't have noticed this necessarily when we read the gospel, but Jesus gave some interesting details at the very beginning of this parable. I want you to notice how Jesus began telling this story. This is what he said. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower. Now, that's a lot of detail for a simple story. Jesus could have just said there was a landowner who had a vineyard, but no, Jesus had to include the wine press and the watchtower and the fact that the landowner planted the vineyard. Jesus wanted them to know that the landowner planted the vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press, and built a watchtower for this reason. That sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 5. Listen to Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well, says Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus told this story. So in both Jesus' parable and in Isaiah 5, we have a vineyard planted by the Lord with a wine press and a watchtower. Isaiah 5.2 and Matthew 21.33 match each other. And there's no way those religious leaders listening to how Jesus began this story, there's no way they would not have heard the allusion to Isaiah 5. They knew their Bibles. They memorized their Bibles. School was listening to the recitation of the Bible. Well, so here is how that passage from Isaiah 5 that began so lovely, here's how it continues. Here's the rest of the story. Then my loved one looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? That's a rhetorical question. The farmer did all the work. He bought the field. He planted it. He built a wall around it. He built a wine press. He built a watchtower so that it could even be guarded. So there's no excuse. The Lord did this work. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? But when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there, and I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And then Isaiah wrote, just in case the people Isaiah was writing to missed it, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed. He he looked for righteousness but heard only cries of distress. 
So when Jesus told this parable about farmers who were supposed to produce fruit for the owner but didn't, and furthermore rejected the servants and even killed the son, when Jesus told this parable and told it the way he did, those chosen people listening to this parable would have had Isaiah 5 in mind, and they would have heard Isaiah's words of judgment on them. Which is why... When Jesus asked the question at the end of the parable, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Which is why those religious leaders knew the answer as to what would happen to the tenants. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, says the NIV. He will utterly destroy those evil men, says the New English translation. He will totally destroy those wicked farmers, says the Common English Bible. And he will put those wicked men to a horrible death, says the New Living Translation. They knew the answer because judgment is what Isaiah said would happen. They knew the answer. So while this parable may not be so familiar to us for obvious reasons, who wants to read this on a Sunday morning? Maybe those who want to be saved. So while this parable may not be so familiar to us, we should know that Jesus was basically telling a story they would have been very familiar with. So Jesus' question about what the owner should do, that was really a Sunday school question for them. They knew the answer. And they had to answer it the way they did because that's what the Old Testament prophets said would happen. If Israel didn't produce fruit, God's judgment would be visited on them. Which is why Jesus said what he said next. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So not only was Jesus indicting them, Jesus was saying so was Isaiah and so was Jeremiah. Jesus was announcing prophetic judgment on the religious leaders that week in the cleansing of the temple and in the cursing of the fig tree and in the telling of this story. No wonder they wanted him dead. So that's the context for the parable. Now maybe we're ready to answer the question I asked at the beginning of the message. What do you think? So was the fruit the point of the parable Jesus told? Was it all about the fruit? Is it all about the fruit? Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Is it about the fruit? It sure sounds like it. Everything that Jesus was doing the week of his crucifixion was... It's a sign of judgment, prophetic judgment on God's chosen people for not allowing the temple to be a house of prayer for everyone, for all nations, for oppressing foreigners, for not tending to widows and orphans, for having allegiances to gods other than the God who is, for stealing and for lying about others and for committing adultery, for not being faithful and for not being people of righteousness and justice. And for thinking that none of it mattered because they could go to the temple and worship, raise their hands and sing, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So was the fruit the point? Was it all about the fruit? Is it all about the fruit? So we read the Ten Commandments this morning. Probably ought to read them more often than we do. It was a scheduled Old Testament reading, as was said. And in these commandments, God described how the chosen people were to be. What we sometimes miss is that these commandments are reflective of God's character. The children of Israel were to be these ways because of who God was. 
These are not arbitrary commands. They reveal who the people of God should be because of who God is. These commandments flow from his character. For example, you shall have no other gods before me. Yes, because the God we worship is the only God that is. You shall not make yourself you shall not make for yourself an image. Yes, because the creator of all things will not be defined by the creatures God created. God is not a projection of our own imagination or opinions. We're not to form him into our image or an image we'd prefer. God will not be defined by us. I am who I am is his name. He is to be known, not imagined. And he expects to be known as he is. And you should not misuse the name of the Lord your God. God's name is not to be invoked unless he's speaking. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You will remember that the earth is mine. And you will cease from your creating and your manipulating and your organizing and your strategizing. You will be reminded once a week that I'm the one running the show, so just rest. Let me run the show for a while. Don't make the world in your image either. Honor your father and mother. You respect their authority. You will not be ungrateful to those who gave you life. You will honor the elderly. You should not murder because you're not the author of life. Life is not yours to take either at the very beginning or at the very end. You are to reverence life as coming from God. You shall not commit adultery. You will be faithful and you will be chaste. And there was no thought that this meant anything other than fidelity between a man and a woman. You will not commit adultery because God doesn't. God is faithful. Let me say it more clearly. God is sacrificially faithful. It is a cost to our Lord to be faithful. You shall not steal. You will respect other people's property because God is respectful. And you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You will not slander. You will not lie about others. Others can trust you with their name because God doesn't slander you. And you shall not covet, period you will be content. These commandments all come from the character of God. He's our provision. No need to covet or steal. He's trustworthy. He will not falsely accuse. He's faithful, and so we will be too. He's the author of life, so it's not ours to take. He's honoring of us, so we will be honoring of others. He's always present and able and active, so we don't have to be. He will not be coerced in any way, so don't even try. And he alone is God and will countenance no others. These commandments reveal the God who is. And and in addition to knowing the commandments and that they reveal the character of God, we also need to know why else they were given. Maybe why they were given. Before God gave these commandments, he told Moses why. I mean, he had liberated them from Egypt. 
So it seems reasonable to believe that they would be grateful and respond in obedience. But this is what the Lord said before he gave the commandments. The Lord called to Moses from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, said the Lord Almighty. That's the why for the Ten Commandments. These commandments were for the sake of the whole world. The children of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to represent God to the world, and they were to advocate to God for the world. The commandments were given as light to a sinful world. These commandments were missional. They were to show the beauty of following God. They were, show to, they were to show an alternate way of being in the world. Indeed, after the commandments were given, this is what God said. This was their purpose in Exodus 36. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. The commandments were not just for them. The holiness of God is to be revealed to the rest of the world through us. Let me say it differently. God's holiness is to be revealed to the rest of the world through us. They're to be obeyed as a light in a sinful world, a world that cannot see any other way of being. The commandments were given so that the rest of the world might know who God is. Commandments were to be obeyed in order to reveal the God who is. They were not created for their sake. They had a mission to the rest of the world. In God's judgment of the people he chose, in Jeremiah and in Isaiah, and those are just two, Jesus' judgment of God's chosen people the week of his crucifixion was because they had forsaken the mission. They weren't bearing fruit. So let me ask you for the sixth time in the parable we read this morning in which Jesus said, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Was fruit the point? Is it all about the fruit? It sure sounds like it. Except we've kind of ignored that very important last detail. The reason the owner would, in those religious leaders' words, bring those wretches to a wretched end and utterly destroy those evil men and totally destroy those wicked farmers and put the wicked men to a horrible death, the reason that that was going to be the end of the tenants was not only because they refused to give an accounting of their labor to the owner. The reason those wicked men would be utterly destroyed was because they killed the son. They refused to recognize the right of the son 
to call for the fruit. So it's about the fruit for sure. But more than that, it's about the son's right to expect fruit. Folks, this parable is about the lordship of Jesus Christ and his authority to expect from us the fruit of the life of God within us. This parable is about the lordship of Jesus Christ and his authority to expect that we continue the work he began. So for the seventh and last time, was fruit the point? Was it all about the fruit? Is, is it all about the fruit? Close. It's about the son having the authority to expect fruit from his people. It's about doing the mission of Christ for Jesus' sake. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? I don't know. Repent? Change? What do we do with this? Commit? Recommit? What do we do with this? Maybe ask, Lord, what's the fruit I'm supposed to be? Lord, how do you want to work through me? How is the kingdom to come through me? He's the Lord. How do we respond? Maybe confession? Maybe repentance. But please, for sure, commitment. Please, for sure. I'm in, Lord. Work through me. Bear fruit through me. Because you're the Lord and not me. You've been listening to a podcast from College Church of the Nazarene, University Avenue. If you care to join us for worship, we meet each Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. at 200 University Avenue in Bourbonnet, Illinois. We also offer a full range of activities, classes, small group meetings, and events throughout the week. For a complete list of what's going on at College Church or for more information on how you can get involved, please go to www.collegechurch.org.